The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. All right, so this morning uh, we're continuing our engagement in the book of James, and uh, my only uh, mild regret is that while we speak often to the uh, outline and structure that uh, I didn't provide for you the outline, but hopefully that's becoming embedded in your memory at this point in time because at, now we are in beginning our fifth engagement, or excuse me, our f- engagement, the fifth major section. So we've worked through chapter one and uh, the uh, primary points of emphasis that have been cultivated by James. It's not just necessarily so that we could break it up into to tangible pieces and to various messages and title different things. It's because the structure that James has introduced to this book, and now we're again beginning the fifth section, about halfway through the second chapter. So um, one of the things that I've also pressed in our study is that there's a, a clear continuity to the book of James. And so one of the the critiques of James is that he's, he's the Proverbs of the New Testament, in which he is abounding in an emphasis in wisdom, the wisdom that comes from above and that should direct us to a perfecting maturity. But I think there also is the implicit, he's very proverbial in the sense that he gives us little pieces of truth and they're just kind of strung together, not necessarily a lot of continuity in terms of the, the flow of his message. But I, I think that we're seeing quite to the contrary, and especially this week, it, it's going to draw from where we've already been. And so there's a, an advantage to having walked through chapter one together to see that continuity. So there's a clear continuity to the message um, and the various themes and points of unique emphasis as they're developed in each of these major sections. And so when we come to the fifth one, it's not disconnected from the first, the second, the third, the fourth, or what will follow as well. I didn't have that up there for you. I apologize. So there we have our cover slide, and we're moving on to the, the first portion here. So 14 through 17 will be our, our primary point of emphasis, uh, James chapter 2, verses 14 to 17, while also mindful of 14 through 26. So in this fifth section, uh, James is developing the argument that a living faith is a working faith. That's what he's aiming at. It's not, again, something that, oh, this would be a helpful message from James, but rather, again, what he's aiming at in the fifth section, 14 to 26, is that a living faith is a working faith. The matter that we've already begun observing, though, in both of the last two sections as we work through the receiving and applying of the Scripture. So you remember the end of chapter 1, what does he speak to? He talks about how to, to receive the implanted word, which is able to save your soul. What, does, what happens when you receive the implanted word? It's a transformative work. You become a doer of the word. There's that expectation. It's not just a, we would encourage you to be doers of the word. This is the, the reasonable expectation. And how does that work itself out? Well, pure and undefiled religion. And how does that express itself? Caring for widows and orphans or visiting them in their need and maintaining a matter of holiness. And then we went to the fourth section, which began the first part of chapter 2, first half of chapter 2, and what does he do there? He continues very close thematically with not to have a, a divided um, exp- or expression of, of care for others, not to show partiality, but to exercise love for one another, to fulfill the royal law. And now another point of continuity that we're going to see will be more or less overt and uh and various sections of the letter that he's driving us to that being made perfect, complete, and mature. So uh, that was a, a larger thematic element. So we're seeing the care of the church, the care of the needy, 
But as you remember, I hope you remember, the primary emphasis that he's developing in this letter is to be perfect, complete, mature, lacking in nothing by means of submitting ourselves to the wisdom that comes from above. So we see the the carryover of thematic elements from uh, sections three and four, but we're also seeing that major element that it's not always as overt as it will be once more here. And specifically when he talks about Abraham's faith being perfected or made complete by way of it exercising itself through works. And this will be more completely developed after we finished our work in the first half of this passage. So that'll be more of an emphasis next week. But I want you to have a, a larger frame to it for now. So um, again, that perfect, com- or perfect, complete expression of faith will be more and tied to the illustration of Abraham and his own faith in verse 22. Now, a point of distinction here, though, so we have continuity, but we also have distinctions. A point of distinction here is how he introduces this next section. So we've come to expect his most consistent pattern of introducing a new section within the letter by way of employing, you should be very familiar from the last two weeks, a nominative, a direct address accompanied by an imperative, which is introducing a new section. You think, well, what? He's usually using brother accompanied with a command and introducing a new subject. That's the pattern we saw with section one, two, three, and four. It's the pattern that he'll return to for most of the letter. However, this is one of the sections that he opens with a question that directs us to a new subject. So he does have a bit of a different pattern here, but not completely different. He's going to exercise this a few more times. And so it is a little different. It's the first time we've seen that kind of transition, but it is a clear transition, opening with a question, introducing a new subject. And as we'll see, this opening question is the first half of a pair of questions that begin a section with even more questions as James develops this very important subject of exercising a living faith. So in this sense, the irony being, this is where people see James pitted against Paul, and they would never, ever see that with themselves, but he sounds very Pauline in terms of crafting an argument with questions, answering questions that build on questions to direct us and continue to build, build, build the argument of what he's getting at, which is namely that a a living faith is a faith that has works. So with this in view, let's read our passage together now. James chapter 2, verses uh, 14 through 26. Again, this morning, our primary emphasis will be in that first section. He writes, What use is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister was without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Now, 
when we came to the third major section of the book, I noted that it contained what I think is most likely the most well-known verse of the book of James. So the first section covered the first part of chapter one, the middle section, this uh, really kind of the middle section of chapter one, third section covered the end, and that's where he talks about receiving and doing the word. And we came to verse 22 where he states, but become doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. And if I'm going to pick a verse that that's what James is known for, that's what people are going to cite and reference, I, would, I think that's a really good choice. And I find the attention that this verse receives encouraging. It's a really great verse to give special attention to when thinking about James or even the, the whole of the scriptures, to receive the word and to do, to put them to action. And James is obviously very action-oriented, but it's, a, it's an invaluable way to approach the scriptures. But it also captures the spirit of what James is developing in this portion of the letter as living faith is effectively doing the believed word. That's exactly what living faith is. It's not that we've completely introduced something different and a new challenge to, to engage with, oh, how are we going to reconcile that with faith and whatnot? We've already cultivated the foundations for this, that a believing faith, a genuine faith, is one that hears and does the word. That's the nature of a working faith, a living faith. A doing what we would doing that we would say is expressed in works. So, if we celebrated what James expressed in chapter one, if we said chapter one verse twenty-two and that whole of that section that was beloved and precious and valuable, we want to be a people who put the word to action. So, if we celebrated that, then our work in chapter two should be most naturally a very encouraging engagement as well. However, for some, this portion of the chapter is the the catalyst for James's dismissal. And there's strong historic precedent and obviously very strong thoughts on this matter. That's really unfortunate. It's actually quite tragic. And I think he would find that a, I think he would find that a bit peculiar. But not only James, his dear friends and ministry partners, Peter, would find it very strange that someone would take the message of James and say, no, we need to dismiss that. There's the, it lacks the continuity of the, the integrity of the scriptures and the, the gospel message. But not just Peter, but Paul also would say, what, you're, you're going to throw James out? Really? I would have guessed somebody, James? And this has become the proverbial elephant in the room when engaging this portion of, the, of James's letter. Now, proverbial illustrations work for a reason. Uh, their attachment with reality roots the image in a uniquely effective way, such as when we say the elephant in the room. Now, I'm going to it sounds like uh, I'm going to wax eloquent on a, uh, an illustration, but there's for a reason. I know what an elephant in the room, I know what the, the, the phrase means, I know what it's getting at. But just walk with me, because I want you to see something here. So recognizing that this portion of James has become the proverbial elephant in the room, the, the fact that it stops conversation, it, it, it causes some measure of consternation for some. Well, I think about that. And then I also think about the fact that I've had an opportunity to see an elephant in the wild while on a ministry trip to Zambia. So we were there for ex observing a church planting ministry with Conrad and Bayway, and it was a very effective work. And while we were there, uh, one of the pastors said, you know, you've seen our work in the church, but we also want you to see Zambia. And we want you to see uh, part of our what makes us really unique. And so we got to go uh, see some different things, some wildlife in, in the wild, as it were, and got to see an animal, or excuse me, lar large animals uh, from zebras running to giraffes walking around. But and then there was a big open field we're driving through, and there comes an elephant. It was really extraordinary. 
They're large, magnificent creatures, seemingly very gentle, but we know that they are crushingly powerful, not to be trifled with. I've also seen elephants in a variety of zoos where they did not have quite the range of territory as observed in the nature preserve, but they have a significant amount of room in a, a cultivated habitat. And I've seen elephants in circuses, what appears to be a bygone experience. As some of our little ones, they're not going to see that. And that's, I'll leave that alone. That's just something for somebody else to decide. But um, nevertheless, it's been kind as uh, determined as that's not kind. It's not fitting for the creature to be put in that context. But what I've never seen is an elephant in a church, much less in a room of this size. It would be quite extraordinary and terrible all at the same time. I think we have seating problems now. It might solve the wall problem. And, and why? Well, it doesn't belong. It doesn't belong. It would be unkind to the animal and dangerous to the people. Now, I'm not speaking to the matter of elephants in various locations, though, just to fill out an already obvious, well-established figure of speech, but rather to firmly press something. There's an elephant that some feel creeps into this room when we open and engage this portion of James, and that's not fair. It's not fair. It certainly would not be fair to the elephant, but the elephant's just a metaphor, so it's going to be just fine. But more importantly, this is not fair to James. That's not how we ought to approach the book of James. I think it's very, very strange to basically introduce, hi, my name's David, you're James. Oh, I've heard about you, and I'm very suspect of what you have to say. That's not how we treat the scriptures. I don't think that's a wise engagement. So it's not necessarily an element to, um, that, that's not how we approach it in the sense of um, proper hermeneutics, I would say, but also it detracts from the message. When we're focusing on, ah, is he challenging Paul rather than what did James have to say? What did James have to say? Now, I'm aware that the passage has, and its language has been grossly abused. I, I recognize that. And there's various, uh, um, obviously, historic reasons that it's challenged. And so when we get to the second half of the passage, when we especially get to Abraham and the justification by Abraham, and he says that you are not justified by faith alone, but by works and faith, you say, whoa, wait a second, I've read Romans 3 and 4, but you know what, that's okay. It's okay. We're focused on James right now. And so when we get to that second half of the passage, we'll speak to that in as much as it may be necessary, but I want to preemptively caution that we need not make the balance of our focus in the study on defending James, because James wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, and Paul never contradicted him. And I want you to think about it in that context, because usually it's, oh, is James contradicting Paul? No, it was actually Paul that didn't contradict James. Because as you remember, we labored in the introduction, James wrote first. This is one of the, arguably the earliest letter, certainly the earliest epistle of the New Testament church. James, who Paul came to so that he might have his own understanding and articulation of the gospel affirmed by him. Paul is laboring. He's come to faith, and he comes to James and Peter and says, I want to make sure I'm getting the gospel right. You think that's the guy that all of a sudden now he's going to go off the hinges and say, well, it's not that after all. No. James, who Paul identified as a pillar of the church. James, who, when Paul came back to Jerusalem, after being a seasoned missionary pastor, heeded his counsel. So I'm mindful of the historic abuse and natural tension within the language, but we need not impose that on the text as though James was, um, as though that were part of the element in the context of James's writing. We also don't need to feel like we have to rescue James. It'd be very, very strange. You, you walk up to somebody that's a strong, able-bodied person and say, here, I'm, I'm here to rescue you. And they're kind of looking at you, I'm, I'm okay. So... Andre, we go to fellowship time. 
I don't think anybody needs to be like, Mr. Andre, let me take you and I'm going to, I'm going to get you to fellowship time. I'm going to sit you down over here. Would you like some snacks? You'd probably be really frustrated. Like, get your hands off me. I'm fine. Okay. Well, (laughs) James not. (laughs) So we don't have to rescue James. He's, he's just fine. He's in no need of rescuing, which is why it's frustrating when various teachers and commentators even try, I would say, manipulate how James and Paul were using the same languages from the same passages and saying, well, he didn't mean it that way. He meant it this way. And they didn't mean the same thing when they're drawing from the same thing. They're talking about the same subjects and they're getting to the same conclusions. It's okay. Let's just labor and work through James and let him speak for himself. So not to belabor this matter further, I'll give my concise resolution to the apparent tension between James and Paul in this matter of faith and works. So here it is in one word. I never accomplish anything in one word. It's context. Okay, problem solved, right? Well, that probably won't satisfy many of you. So here's what I mean by context. James and Paul both believed and taught that a living faith is a working faith. They both clearly, explicitly state this. However, when speaking to the matter of the relationship of justification and faith, Paul, I would argue, presupposes the conclusion that James develops here. Paul doesn't go back and say, now when I say faith, I mean dot, 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 dot. When he says faith, he's meaning exactly what James has already articulated as to this is what a living, genuine faith is. So what conclusion are they coming to? That a living faith is a working faith. So when Paul is speaking about faith, he is speaking about a matter, a living faith in the same manner as James would and has. So what of Paul's firm statements that someone is not justified by works? Well, let's note those details here. One is not justified by works of the law. That's really a clear, necessary detail of Paul. He says over and over again, you're not justified by works of the law. Or more plainly expressed for our purposes, one's works do not justify them before God. However, when we state justification by faith alone, we are presupposing that faith itself is not alone. So it's not a problem with who's saying what, it's what are we imposing upon them. Let them speak for themselves. So again, James laid a foundation. Paul continues to build off that foundation. James says faith is not alone. A living faith is a working faith. Paul says justification by faith alone, which implicitly means justification by a faith that has works. Otherwise, it's a dead, useless, and as James would say, a non-justifying faith. So the elephant needs to be allowed to leave the room. You know, it never really belonged But under the fog of confusion, even the challenges of apparent tensions among various texts, it wandered in here. But it's time to see the elephant out so we can hear directly from James, who, for what it's worth, had already made it plain that salvation is rooted in God's sovereign election and not personal works. We don't have to go back and defend him. He's already done this himself. So we saw in James chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we'd be kind of a first fruits, be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. We also saw in chapter 2, verse 5. Chapter 2, verse 5, listen, my beloved brothers, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? Now, as I stated, uh, this next major section of the letter opens with a pair of questions. 
It's a pair of questions that already are established with the authorship of James, who has affirmed that salvation is by God, it's by grace alone, by faith alone, a faith that will produce work. So we love Ephesians 2, right? By faith, you've been saved, by, by faith through grace that you've been saved, and then ultimately with a view to works. Now, that being said, we come to this next major section of the letter, and how does it open? It opens with not only the introductory question, which sets up our new section, but really a pair of questions. So he states, what use is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? And then the, the second question, can that faith save him? These two questions will serve to frame our engagements with this passage, as I believe they are what James aims to develop in the opening and closing sections here, which are themselves bridged by a small transition. So the first question about proclaimed faith, absent of works, is developed in the first section that appears to, uh, that spans from verses 15 through 17. So again, that first section in blue there covers, and he answers it in those first couple of verses. That second question, can that faith save him? He skips down. He answers that in the second portion of it. And in between there, you have um, a bridge section, as it were, that unites the two. So he states, again, developing that first section, even so faith, if it has no works, is dead by itself. So he drove us to that conclusion. So first question answered by those verses, by other questions, by an illustration, but ultimately driving to that conclusion, even so faith, if it has no works, is dead by itself. The second question about salvific uh, the salvific benefits of this proclaimed faith is developed in the third section that spans from verses 20 through 26, concluding with a very like answer, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. And so we, again, we see just one more time, we have three parts to this fifth section. The first introduction is two questions. Those two questions are answered. The first one's answered in the first section. And what's the conclusion? That faith without works is dead. We have a second question. That second question's answered in the, the light of the second part of the passage, as it were. And how does it conclude itself? It drives itself to a very like conclusion that faith without works is dead. So answer, question, answer, faith without works is dead. Question, answer, faith without works is dead. Bridged in the middle by, um, with a supplemental uh, supporting transitional passage of verses 18 and 19, a section that uh, carries significant weight in the advancement of James's argument. It's not just a let's bridge to question two, but itself is a rather intense engagement that really ought to provoke us, maybe even in a unique way in terms of where do we fall in the spectrum of knowledge, belief, and genuine faith. And he ad addresses that in that middle section. So don't disregard that middle section. It has its own weight and value as well. So once more, this pair of opening questions are what James gives the majority of his attention to in this text. That first section answering the first question, second question answering, uh, second section answering the second question. Unpacking that faith is useless and cannot save, excuse me, not that faith is useless and cannot save. That's not what he's driving at. So don't, don't listen and say, James is saying that faith can't accomplish these things. Rather, he's saying faith whose identity lacks evidentiary works is useless and cannot save. It's a dead faith. So that's a necessary qualification. Listen to how James is building his argument. It's not just faith. It's a workless faith, a faith without action, a faith without evidentiary works. 
And in view of the immediate context and the larger discussion of the nature of faith, it's imperative to recognize that what James is dressing down in this passage is not living faith, but again, dead faith. That's what he's going after. He's not going after the challenge of faith and works. He's not going after, let me fix something that Paul's going to talk about. He is going after the distinction of living and dead faith. Do you have a living faith? And why is he going after that? Well, because where it's the trajectory of the letter that you be made perfect, complete, whole in Christ, full maturity by way of walking the wisdom that comes from above. And so he's going to direct us. And this is what a mature, complete faith looks like. So a dead faith that many have clung to as securing their place in the church and amongst Christ's beloved would be a proclaimed faith. A faith that is declared, so someone says they have faith, but they don't have works, so there's that dead faith, the proclaimed faith without works is a detriment to themselves and their hope of salvation. And in view of this, one must always remember that profession does not implicitly equal possession. And so a lot of times people get excited, so-and-so professed Christ. That is exciting, that's wonderful, if it's genuine, well, that's a really rude qualification to make. Who are you to, to soul search someone? I, I'm not. I, I, don't, I can't examine the heart. I just know what the text says, that someone says they have faith. It has to be accompanied by works. That's a living faith. If they lack that, then it's a dead faith. So while one may profess faith while utterly lacking it, so that would be profession without possession which is this, the context he sets us up with those questions. Now, while James will go on to unpack his answers more completely throughout the passage, there's still value to, to first more closely examining the questions themselves. So we're going to look at how he unpacks them, but let's look at these questions for a little bit here. So the first question explores the usefulness of this proclaimed faith. What use is it? If it wants to know if, in separating faith from works, does such faith maintain any operational value? So can, can we parse that apart and faith still have something to it? This discussion in turn will direct our attention back to the practical outworking of James's treatment of pure and undefiled religion and of keeping the royal law. So remember, that's what we talked about at the end of chapter 1, first half of chapter 2. He's going to lean on that. How do you want to understand a faith that has works or without works? Well, let's view back to what's pure and undefiled religion and what's keeping the royal law. And as we've observed, and then I want to consistently keep before you, the answer is, let's go ahead and get it out there. It's no. Is this faith of any use that has no works? No, it's of no use. There's no value to such an expression or proclamation of faith as it's a dead faith. The second question builds off the first, and it's more concise as it's focused on the matter of one's personal salvation, or as James will go on to express their justification. So can that, he says, faith without works, is that of any use? No. Can that faith save him? No. So now, whereas the first question answers uh, known from its conclusion in verse 17, we know that it's useless because he states as much all the way at the end of that section. The second question not only shares that feature of, ah, oh, we know the answer is no because you go all the way to the end and he says as much in verse 26, but it also answers the question itself. So the grammatical structure provides the question's own answer, which again is no. So if you were just reading your Greek New Testament, you'd say, he's asking a question. Oh, he's already said no in the question. And so can that faith save him? No. So again, we have an answer explicitly put into the conclusion of the section, but also built into this question itself that it is no. Now, I believe a plain reading does not uh, leave room for any confusion here. Um, I know there's a measure of confusion on different levels with this passage, but I don't think a plain reading leaves room for confusion. But the grammar nevertheless gives us a boost in affirming that faith 
And the second question is the same proclaimed faith from the first question. So when he says, can that faith save him? It actually is, can the faith save him? You might be like, oh no, you're trying to slip one by us with reading the English, or English text and you're leaving out an article and now he's introduced a whole other matter. Can the faith save him? Well, no, it, it does this by way of um, using the article in a special way to refer back to the first element of faith and the first question, which is a faith without works. So can a faith that has no works save him? The answer is no. And I know that can sound a bit tedious, but what we're trying to carefully balance here is the nature of the faith discussed. It's not genuine faith, and that's part of what people get have difficulty with. How is James using faith? Well, he's talking about a proclaimed faith, which is distinct from an actual living faith. So a living faith can and will save. By contrast, it's the proclaimed faith that lacks evidentiary works that is useless on account of it being dead. And we have to understand that faith without works is dead, a conclusion James unambiguously provides as the final answer to both questions. It's useless because it's dead. It cannot save because it's dead. So how do we understand it? Well, it's dead, it's dead, it's dead. He repeats this over and over again. It's dead. And we use that term because that's James's term, right? But we also recognize that, boy, that, that really gives a good punch to it, to say, ah, that faith is dead. And so I want to emphasize that. I want to emphasize that that faith, that's how you should view it. It's useless. It's separate. It's detached from any operational advantage. It lacks authority. It lacks ability. But also I'm mindful from a pastoral perspective um, that, you know, to say something's dead, it's dead, it's dead. Is, is not always the, the most favorable way to approach something. Because I know that death has visited several within the fellowship in recent years, has visited those we've prayed for, is soon approaching others whom we love and are praying for even now. So in that regard, dead really is a, is a terrible word because with it comes the full weight of separation and the realization of being utterly powerless. That's why it's part of the reason we hate death is it's that final separation, as it were, in terms of this natural life. So while it's a hard word, I'm compelled to press it before us so that we might feel all the weight of James's conclusions because faith without works is dead. It's, it can't do anything. It's, it's detached. It's separated. It's powerless. So all those feelings that we have about the, the weight and the pain of death, that's what's been introduced to a faith that lacks works. And that should bother and invigorate us in no small part because there really are dual threats here. What's the nature of a dead faith? What does it matter if someone has a dead faith? You know, some people are more zealous. Some people are more active. Some people are more about, busy about the work of the church and the work of ministry and the work of the Lord. Well, dead faith is, is extraordinarily consequential. First, we have the threat of a merciless judgment facing a dead faith. A merciless judgment. Well, yeah, remember we finished with the royal law last week and those who fail to express mercy will be judged without mercy. And what's the nature of expressing mercy? What's well, keeping the royal law? Who keeps the royal law? Those who are heirs of the kingdom. Who are heirs of the kingdom? Those who have been called to the Lord, drawn to himself. Those who are poor, not only impoverished, but poor in faith. And so you detach all that, you unravel it, and now all of a sudden a dead faith faces a merciless judgment one that can be expected for those whose religion also is worthless. As we saw at the end of chapter one, that pure and unfiled religion is this, to visit widows and orphans in their need. Second, there's the threat of our souls being in imminent peril of not ever having truly been justified before God. And so we want to wrestle with all this second half of the chapter and how does Paul fit in? Maybe we should set that argument aside and think about the fact that James is saying if you lack evidentiary works in your faith, that faith is dead and that faith doesn't justify it. It does not declare you righteous before God. You have no standing. 
And so there's two major threats here that death is introduced. That dead faith is a, is a terrifying proposition. So while death is a painful subject, it should sober us to recognize that a dead faith assures more than death, uh, more death is to come as one stands before God in their own sins, facing his merciless judgment. That's the plight of one who has a dead faith. And that's why we're pressing this matter. And that's why we're saying, let's not get caught up on who's, uh, how do we fall on this theological spectrum of historic arguments about passages and just focus on the fact that James says there's a faith that has certain expectations. If we don't meet those expectations, we're in grave, grave danger. And it's a danger of not being reconciled to God. It's a danger of being separated from him. It's a danger of being useless and fruitless for your entire life. And by getting this right, I do not mean that we have to get to work. Well, we do have to get to work, but we don't have to get to work by appeasing God and then going on to call that faith. Now we've slid into something else, and that puts us in the path of the elephant that we've already escorted out of the room. We're not working to please God. That's not how we distort this, but rather in our faith, our faith exercises work. So we do get to work as an expression of exercising our faith. Because the prospect of a works-based salvation is welcomed by neither James nor Paul. Neither has ever endorsed that. That is not what they or anyone else is communicating, and therefore it's not getting it right. Rather, getting this right means securing a living faith that comes by receiving the word. Remember the end of chapter 1, receiving the word, believing its truths, exercising this belief by way of evidentiary works. That's what he's directing us to. It's a continuity within the letter, and it's what he's been building to, and it's what he continues to build to, that we would be perfect, complete, mature in Christ, and exercise our faith in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. Now, having a view to how James is using these questions, their implicit answers. So how is he using them? He's setting us up for an argument. What are their implicit answers? Well, their implicit answers are present. The explicit ones are also present. And so in view of these things and the weight of the subject under examination, let's walk with him as he impacts this first question now. He states in uh, 4 through 17, What use is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? And so that's the introduction to this first section. What use is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? A question that we saw the opening of the, the, the section here that receives an answer through the asking of the same question. And so we saw this. This is a common rabbinical practice with answering a question with a question. If I do that, I'm very going to frustrate you. If James does it, he's crafting an argument. So it's a question that receives an answer through asking actually the same question, namely, what use is that? That's a good question. I want to know if something is useful. I don't like things that aren't useful. I want to know what use is that? And then after building out an illustration, he provides the answer. Or we could say it this way by um, his question, ask the same question by way of an illustration. So here's the question that answers the opening question of what use is a proclaimed faith that has no works. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Now, before we examine the particulars here, we can recognize that James is once more leaning on what's become a, a consistent thematic emphasis for his letter, namely the care of those who are in need of mercy. And so uh, there's a range of themes that we've recognized in the book, and probably the weakest theme that you saw in the, book, uh, the introduction of the book several weeks ago now was we introduced faith, we introduced works, we introduced wisdom, we introduced perfection, we introduced all these subjects, and I included in that rich and poor. 
You might think, well, that's really kind of peculiar. But now as we've walked to James, you start to hear that, don't you? You start to hear that, boy, he has a, a tender spot for that. You listen to me and walk with me long enough, you'll, you'll pick up on, uh, he, if he's going to defer to an illustration, as I will toward the end, you think, oh, I, I bet I know where he's going. He, he tends to draw from a certain pool, or he has certain affections, or he has certain thoughts, he has certain convictions. Well, James is already expressing that. And so he's been cultivating this care of those who are in need of mercy. And James is not some bleeding heart, weak pastor that just, you know, I just want to see everybody happy. No, James wants to see everybody happy because they're action-oriented living faith, which also happens to be directed toward those who are weak, the humble, and the poor, such as the ones who carry the those are the ones who carry the, the, the clear weight of affection in James's heart. He does have a tenderness for them. And this, again, is not just a soft spot for James. He's been making it quite plain that one's engagement with the weak, the humble, and the poor reflects something of them and their appreciation of God's mercy. So we developed that over a number of weeks. That it, It's not that he hates poor, or excuse me, that he loves the poor and hates the rich. It's not that he's got some morbid perspective on socioeconomic engagement of other people or even within the church, but rather he has a clear affection for the poor because they have an appreciation for God's mercy that really is tangible. When they pray, Lord, give us this day our daily bread, they know what that means. They know that they have to look to God to provide, and he says they have a grasp of his mercy. They know that when they come into an engagement and are treated certain ways, that if they're treated well, it's a means of grace, and that God's grace is being extended toward that. And so he does have an appreciation for those who uniquely have a sensitivity to God's mercy, the weak, the needy, the poor. And as such, he's not leaving these matters to simply be relegated to, the again, the place of common social graces, um, but rather he's, he's elevating this matter to theological barometers. And so he's not just saying, this is, good socio, uh, this is good social practice. Rather, he's saying, this is good social practice, and the context of it reflects something of your heart. And so James is emphasizing this company in a unique way, and I think, intention, uh, I think that should capture our attention. A matter that, again, we're seeing really for the third time already, when he talks about pure and undefiled religion, he could have expressed it in any number of ways. But how does he express it? Exercises care for orphans and widows. Chapter 1, verse 27. There can be no partiality in keeping the royal law, a matter expressed in one's treatment of the poor man in dirty clothes who graces your fellowship. Chapter 2, verses 2 to 5. So faith's expected, even necessary expressions come through works which may well be exemplified in our care for those who are in need. That may very well be how it exemplifies itself, namely the weak, the humble, and the poor, groups that make for, you know, terrible fundraising campaigns. You know, we, would we love to just be like, yeah, contractor, no problem. Engineers, no problem. Let's just hand them checks and, or let's just hand them cash. That would be attractive in some ways. And there's, there's an attraction that churches fall into that, that the believing community falls into, because the poor, the weak, and the needy don't make for good they make for terrible fundraising. But what do they do? They make for magnificent displays of mimicking not only James, but Jesus, particularly in his ordering of hospitality. Think back to that, what Jesus states in Luke chapter 14 in terms of how ought we to think about this community as it were. Luke chapter 14, and Jesus also went on to say to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and they will be... And and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you. 
for it will be repaid to you at the resurrection of the righteous. And perhaps that's the secret here. Faith is a view to the resurrection, and therefore faith works accordingly. So it may have been a misnomer to say that I wanted to explore James's thematic development of rich and poor before we examine the particulars of the question, because it seasons how we hear the question, doesn't it? We capture the tone of how he asks these questions when we have a view to how he treats the rich, the poor, the weak, the needy, particularly when we give necessary attention to the description of the persons in need. How does he describe them? As brothers and sisters. He states, if a brother or sister is without, if a brother or sister is in need. So these are not just faceless or nameless, weak, humble, and poor persons who like provisions and are in need. These are brothers and sisters. What is he doing? He's employing the language of the church. And if we're so silly to ask, well, you know, I'm not going to ask who is my neighbor. I've seen where that goes and understand the parable of the Good Samaritan. So, you know what, who is my brother or who is my sister? Well, I'd say just here's an easy point of application. Look around. Look around. It's the believing community. One's brother or sister is not just some person you happen to encounter, you know, like a Samaritan encountering a Jewish man who's been beaten unconscious because, you know, at least then we might have some room to dismiss this, right? No. So if not some stranger whose only relationship to us is that they are in need of mercy and, and we're present to extend such toward them, that would be our loving our neighbor, then how much more is the weight of expectation of care toward a brother or sister in need? So again, if the threshold of loving our neighbor is the one who is in need of mercy, that common expression of how can I apply mercy toward them, and in that I'm expressing love of neighbor, this has actually been even elevated with a greater intimacy of This is a brother or sister, not just someone in need of mercy. This is part of the faith community, part of the local fellowship. And what is the nature of the need expressed here? They are without sufficient clothing or even food for the day. They are cold and hungry. So again, he doesn't give a picture that they don't have a great wardrobe or they're going to, you know, they're going to be struggling. No, this is insufficient means for the day. That when, again, they pray, Lord, give us this day our daily bread, They're not just praying some trite thing that, you know, it's a sweet thing to say, and I want to acknowledge that all good things come from God, including my food or provisions and otherwise. They are saying, Lord, I don't eat if you don't provide. They're cold and hungry. Two experiences we will not see ourselves endure any longer than is absolutely necessary, even to the point of becoming frivolous in our stewardship in a moment of craving a resolution for the moment of inconvenience. And so, again, if you came in here and this building was cold, somebody would probably pump it up real fast and, and give a nice little surge, and maybe that wouldn't be the best economical way to handle it. Or if you're, oh, I'm so hungry. And so you go spend more on food because you want to satisfy that hunger. We All of a sudden, we become terrible stewards when it comes to catering for ourselves. And yet here we have a brother or sister who's in need, in need of daily provision. These brothers and sisters who lacked fundamental necessities, they were deficiently clothed, deficiently fed. And maybe something is coming to mind here, and I hope for some of you it is, maybe Matthew chapter 6, where we recognize, ah, James is constantly doing what? He's constantly leaning on um, the Sermon on the Mount, and here I believe he's doing it again, where Jesus directs our concerns away from these very things as God faithfully provides for such who seek king, the kingdom. So we see in Matthew chapter 6, verses 24 to 33, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. For this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. What is he touched on here? 
food and clothing, sufficient provision of food and clothing, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, how they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? And why are you worried about clothing? Because you probably need it, right? But observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will not God much more clothe you? You have little faith. Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So perhaps this was all just an unfortunate misunderstanding, this context of a brother or sister who is in need of clothing and provision of food. Maybe these brothers and sisters who are lacking in fundamental necessities, uh, they just should have exercised more faith to look to God to provide. Never mind the fact that uh, they don't have the means to get through the next 24 hours, as it were. They just need to seek the kingdom. They need to seek the kingdom and trust God for his provisions. And you know what? Maybe, maybe put a little work into improving their situation. Maybe that's the disposition we should approach this. Hey, you know, Matthew 6, trust God, seek the kingdom, food and clothing provided. I don't know why you're worried about that. That's what the Gentiles, the unbelieving community does. Or, or perhaps instead of raining manna from heaven and keeping one's clothes from wearing out over the period of decades, as God did in the Exodus wilderness wandering, perhaps his provision now has been provided for these poor, weak, and needy persons with a body of fellow religious persons. And we're, we're not afraid of that term religious persons because pure and undefiled religion is what? To visit orphans and widows and their mercy and their need. You know, that community who proclaims to have faith and thereby have given themselves to the royal law to do what? To love one's neighbors themselves. Perhaps that was the means by which a kingdom seeker is provided for. And perhaps their effort to care for themselves has exceeded what you could ever imagine applying for yourself and exasperated as, they, as they're exasperated and they cry out to God for mercy as you walk by blessing them with peace. And so we have this context of, no, we can't just say, well, they ought to be kingdom seekers because God will provide. And here God's placed them in a community of believers in which they're engaged. For what end? Well, so that the community of believers could exercise God's work of providing. So how peculiar no, how wicked to say one has faith and then go and engage such a brother or sister in such a grave need only to wish them well or even to presume they just need to get their act together and put a little effort to their problems and to bite with your words to unambiguously affirm that you see and recognize their need and yet dismiss them with the precious blessing of the peace of God while offering nothing. Go in peace, be warmed and be filled. Go in the peace that we share in Christ. Be warmed and filled. I see. That's why I'm saying be warm because I know you need provision of clothing. Be filled because I can see you're hungry. So may God bless and provide for your needs. How very peculiar. If we don't, if we don't understand that that's peculiar, even wicked, I don't think James can help you. I know I can't help you. And why is he doing this? Again, is this some kind of social uh, program, as it were, some kind of let's partner with those who are providing food and clothing. That's not the point of emphasis. Let's not miss what he's aiming at. 
But again, the statement, go in peace, be warmed and be filled. May God bless you and provide for your needs. And yet, what does James says? You do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? That's what he's driving at. What's the use of that? What's, of what value were your empty, hollow, shallow, biting words? Your words that can affirm that God provides. Yeah, that's an expression of belief and faith. God does provide. But how did that faith exercise itself? In a useless fashion. Why? Because it lacked works. James has answered his first question with a question, and we had best not miss this. What use is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but he has no works, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? So he's bridged what use is that to what use is that. And what use is it? Well, it's none. It's of no use, just a bunch of empty words. Do you mean the proclamation of having faith but no works or blessing someone in need? Um, and so we, again, the what's, what's of no use? Well, it's the proclamation of faith but having no works, blessing someone in need and yet doing nothing. Empty, useless words. And we could, we could pause here and consider, well, what ought we to do? What do we do? What, how do we preserve ourselves from becoming a situation in which we have a useless, ineffective, dead faith? Well, first of all, we recognize we are wealthy people in terms of history, in terms of culture, in terms of even the larger world. We are very wealthy people. And it's quite natural to feel provoked here because the picture pushed hard. It pushed really hard if we were listening, or at least it should have. And why? Was that the reason? Uh, was that the aim? To make us, again, more socially aware, to strip us of our callous indifferences toward those in need, to promote a proactive posture of care. Again, those are, those are reasonable questions, so I'll return to them in a minute. But again, let's, as I've already said, let's not miss the principal reason behind the force of this illustrative question. The principal reason for this illustrative question was to show the profane absurdity of neglecting another in such needs while offering them a blessing. It's as useless as faith without works. That's what he's getting at. It's empty, hollow, useless theology. Or as James plainly states, even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead by itself. Here, John, uh, J. Ronald Blue stated, great claims may be made about a corpse that is supposed to have come to life, but if it does not move, if there are no vital signs, no heartbeat, no perceptible pulse, it is still dead. The false claims are silenced by the evidence. I have faith. Proclaimed. I, I'm proclaiming, I'm declaring, I have faith. I can affirm theological truths about the gospel, about my need for the gospel. Go in peace. You know, the Lord provides. You're a kingdom seeker. Just trust God. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead by itself. This is not an ambiguous matter. Genuine faith, living faith, has its works. It has its demonstrative expressions of action. That's the aim of this portion of our passage, to see and understand the qualitative nature of living faith. Now, a natural consequence of a passage like this and of the larger context which we've already spoken to, namely pure and undefiled religion and keeping the royal law, does press us in ways that are not always challenged. Um, so let's take the opportunity to consider some of these matters. First, let's refresh two matters that we have, come, uh, we have to this moment taken for granted. A working definition of both faith and works. So faith, I would define as confident belief in what God has revealed, both that which is presently seen and experienced, and especially that which is unseen and not to present fully experienced. 
And regarding works, John MacArthur provides the following working definition here. All righteous behavior that conforms to God's revealed word, but specifically in the context, the acts of compassion. And so here we have, let's get our terms down together, faith and works. So mindful of faith of works and how we've already drawn out in our study of James, particularly or what we've already drawn out in our study of James, particularly the last several weeks, how might that express itself in our faith? What works might put our living faith on display, not for personal accolades, but for the exaltation of Christ as expressions of his mercy or work through us. And so what I'm driving at is what does this look like? You can't have an action-oriented, practical expression of faith and really just leave it hanging and say, well, you ought to do it. And then leave you walking out saying, ought to do what and how? Because I want to have a living faith. How do we put legs to it? Well, before exploring this, I want to first qualify that I have not pressed us to many precise applications in this area to present, as it's not an area that it's always going to be as clear as we might hope. It's hard to work through these things. Application sometimes is so precise that I think it can miss given context or even miss the intent behind it. Some areas are more plain in principle, but in application, we all need wisdom. And so what do we do when we need wisdom? We ask. God generously provides for those who ask in faith. So we ask for wisdom in these things, even as we try to wrestle through them. But nevertheless, two helpful guides here might be Matthew 6 and Galatians 6, as we think about how can we exemplify living faith in a like manner that James has spoken of here. Again, recognizing his point wasn't to drive us to a social response, but recognizing his point was to drive us to the fact that genuine faith has genuine action. But that being said, pure non-fod religion, loving our neighbors, keeping the royal law does press us to certain points of action. So let's consider that for a moment. First, we have uh, Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 21, give us a guiding principle. Do not store up yourselves, for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So having a kingdom-oriented mindset does something. It eases the grip of stewardship. So now you see your brother or sister in need. It's not, you know, God bless you. Be at peace. Be warm to be filled. Because you know what? I really like what I have, and I just prefer to move on my way. And so having a kingdom-oriented mindset it eases that grip of being generous, not storing up temporal treasures, making it easier to let these things pass through your hands. Galatians 6 um, Verse 10 states, so then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. So that's comprehensive. That's the, the, the loving our neighbor, the one who is in need of mercy. But let's narrow it down, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. So do good to all as we have opportunity, but there's a measure of uh, deference to apply toward the faith community to the brother or sister in need. And so immediately, some points of application that come to mind are expressions of fiscal mercy that have been expressed to the church just within the last few weeks. I shared one of them just a moment ago, but looking back, we've participated in Emmanuel's Child. To what end? Is it just so that we can feel good about making somebody's Christmas feel special? And you want to do that, you just put a Hallmark movie in. There's a certain contingency of the population that will feel special about Christmas. Not all of us. But if you want to make somebody special, feel special about Christmas, do plenty of other things. But what did we do? We gave intentionally so that the children would receive resources, even some toys, but most importantly, what? They have an opportunity to hear the gospel. And what did we do in that? We also strengthened the hands of local churches, not just blindly gave money toward general organizations, which is fine, but we aimed and targeted to strengthen the hands of local churches whose reach is beyond our own natural reach, influence, and opportunities. 
Also, we spoke of just a little bit ago our support of the network of, network of churches in Ukraine who are serving others as warming stations that not only uh, declare but demonstrate the gospel uh, amidst the egregious hardships that in God's providence he saw fit to, to provide an unsolicited opportunity to be a means of grace to those in need. And so what did we do? We, we gave tangible means to come alongside them. We saw our brother and sister without food and clothing. We said, we can, we can get behind that. We can do that. Faith took root in action. And they're not giving hollow blessings, but tangible expressions of help to the poor, the weak, and the needy. And what else? Well, I know there are some of us who have and continue to support children through ministries such as Compassion International. And maybe you think about that, and you're like, oh, it's such an imperfect organization. It is. And there's certain things about it that I've heard in public settings. I'm like, oh, don't, that, please don't advertise that. That's not, I'm, I'm not going to get behind certain things. Other things I will be had before. It's an imperfect organization that's nevertheless reaching in places we can't reach and doing the work of pure and undefiled religion of visiting orphans and widows in their need. I know there's some of us who have and others who are even this year working with organizational efforts such as Operation Christmas Child, which is a local expression of the kind of work that Emmanuel's Child aims to do. And there's some of us who do what we can to minister within the jail in terms of uh, evangelistic Bible study and, and exhorting them to come to faith, to walk in faith, and then also, hey, you know what? This isn't forever, and when you get out, we would encourage you to find a local church. And what happens then is then you come into play, not only in praying and strengthening our hands and freeing us and doing like things, but also when someone comes in and they don't have bright clothes and, and they don't have gold rings on, you nevertheless impartially welcome them. And then there are those seasons, such as I've shared about when I lived in Columbia, South Carolina, I was giving difficult men rides to church on Sunday and a meal every week, and they, were, they didn't fit in everywhere, and that's okay. And that was an expression of mercy toward them. And there have been seasons that I've even used to keep blankets in my car. Very, you, I, I hate the cold. Um, I hate that other people even have to be cold. And so I would occasionally have seasons where I'd get cheap blankets, heavy blankets, and you know, try to get rid of them, try to give them to people. And I know many of you in moments and seasons of life have given generously to those in need. And some of you may even now privately be in such a season of service. And not all expressions of service are, are as dramatic or as overt and so we may have to just wrestle here, prayerfully wrestle regarding what our roles and opportunities might be for now, for later, or for a season of life. But I'd also caution that any such actions necessitate wisdom, especially when trying to evaluate the range of examples and opportunities before us. And in this regard, I think about maybe someone getting so wound up with conviction. I, I want to have pure and undefiled religion. I want to, to give toward those who need. I want my faith to have feet and action. I want it to be living. I want it to exemplify the kind of faith that justifies, the kind of faith that expresses increasing maturity. That's what I want to do. And so people get all excited and they open their Bibles. They turn to the early book of the, of Act, or the early chapters of Acts and they see what the church did and the church just gave everything away. And I would say exercise wisdom because there is some, okay, there's some wisdom with looking at and observing history. But consider what was happening in the early Jerusalem church. They went from giving everything away to being in need of support. And I'm not equating the two. I'm not saying that that's the exact nature of the relationship, but it was a season. There was a season in life in which the church could give so generously, so sacrificially. And then there was a season in which the Jerusalem church was dependent on other churches to support them. There are different seasons and expressions of opportunity. And so what do we do? We exercise wisdom. We recognize that while we don't necessarily have all the particulars, God loves a cheerful and gracious giver, and he loves the poor, the weak, the needy, those who are in need of mercy, to whom we can express 
expressions and applications of the royal law. And faithful men and women, again, also know the grace of being content in all things. It's not that we have to satisfy every need in all circumstances. How does Paul end his thank you letter to the Philippians? He says, thank you so much. I'm so grateful for Epaphroditus and the ministry that he exercised on your behalf and in your generous gift, but I also know this, that I know what it's like to have much and much to have from much to little, and in that context, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so, again, wisdom needs to be applied. When to do what? So we're not going to find a simple answer. And why? Because wisdom does not yield its treasure so casually. On the flip side, though, we need not hide behind wisdom when we, don't, uh, when we do have sufficient clarity, at least in principle, because we see here in 1 John chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, but whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. So we're going to have to just wrestle. We're going to have to wrestle to pursue wisdom. And why? Because we want to balance our learning, because we do a lot of that. We're very good students. You're very good students. You, you can articulate things well, and you could recite back to someone, this is a, this is, there's no argument between James and Paul, so let's toss that out. What is James emphasizing? Well, first half of what he's doing here is two questions. He answers them the same way, but he's developing one through this picture and the second through this picture. And the first one, he's addressing the fact that dead faith is this in nature that it looks and beholds and it says, God will provide, but not by means of me. And it has no regard for such things. That's not a living faith. You can, you can, ex, you can wax eloquent on that. And that's really great, but we also need to balance it with taking action. And so we have to figure out what does that balance look like with a healthy measure of charitable acts, a healthy measure of exercising the royal love and pure and undefiled religion. Because living faith, again, has demonstrable works. And while James, again, could have drawn from innumerable examples, he could have drawn from all kinds of things and says, this is what a living faith looks like. This is what a living faith looks like. He drew from one, he drew from a well that is often, he's often turned to the exercising of mercy toward those in need and the application, again, of those things that he's already discussed. And so I think to that end, it's helpful for us not just to have the academic expression of what a living faith is, to have that, but then to say, boy, James gave a very poignant sharp illustration, how might that look in my life too? And that's hard, but I hope we'll wrestle well. And as we conclude for today, I want to give a, a, I think a helpful illustration from Spiros Zodiades. Um, He's Greek. That's the only way I can explain his name. But in his commentary on James, he provided an illustration that it was really more the view to where I thought we would get. I thought we'd get to 18 and 19 today, but that's not going to happen. But he the illustration, nevertheless, is helpful here, and it presses us to consider how to understand a spectrum, because this is what part of a lot of what I wrestled through this week, one that ranges from knowledge to general belief to a living faith, and he really, James unpacks that more precisely in those verses that follow, um, in verses 18 and 19, and because he, he effectively is crafting, again, uh, this is what living faith looks like. Um, it's not just cognitive knowledge. It's not even affirmational belief. The demons do as much. Uh, you know the great theological points, the great Shema, and you can recite it every day, and that's really great. But there's a distinction over here now to living faith. And so now he's got this spectrum he's working with. And so that's where we're heading, but we have a view to it now, and it impacts our passage now. And in speaking to that and wrestling through it, I found Spiros Odiades' illustration helpful. Um, because, again, it's a difficult matter to negotiate as, one, as uh, James presses us to think through, again, the deficiency of general belief, 
that's expressed in a faith with no works it needs demonstrable work. So how do we fit that spectrum? Well, here's a simple illustration. He was arguing that the nature of genuine or living faith is one that is secured in the mind. So cognitively, we've received the word of God. We've listened. We've heard faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. There's a, a cognitive affirmation receiving, right? We receive the word of God. James has already told us in chapter one, there's a way to receive it, to have our hearts prepared so that it be effective, the implanted word, which is able to save our souls. So it moves to the heart. And so now we often us will often say, ah, it needs to move from the head to the heart. Yeah, that's good. But we need to go further head, heart, to hands. And that's where living faith demonstrates itself. And that's where we find that spectrum from knowledge to belief to living. It's lived out through the hands. And this is exactly why we pressed a little harder today, because I want to make sure the truths of what James is directly expressing and implicitly expecting are reaching not only the head and the heart, but also the hands. So if it helps you appreciate this, I have a a closing illustration of my own as well. And again, you're like, oh, this is where thoughts, affections, and, and uh, this is where he's going to go. It, it is. I have a, an affection for certain things, and the experience has impacted me certain ways. So that being said, heart, head, heart, hands, and our closing illustration. I think about law enforcement officers, and what's the training that you receive? Watch the what? Kurt, can you help me? Yeah, watch the hands. Always watch the hands, and so you have the command regarding this, and a verbal command, a very firm verbal command, not rude, firm, is show me your hands. Show me your hands. Show me your hands. It's not, and you're thinking like, what are they saying? They're saying, they want to see these. And I've told Denise before, I've been out on cold days like this, and we had a couple of years ago, it was a satisfying experience to know that it happens to other people. An officer had come for whatever reason, an alarm call or something, and locked himself out of his car. And so um, it happens. And so I was approaching, and I was approaching like this, and I thought, oh, my goodness. No, no, no. He wants to see these. He doesn't know who I am, so show me your hands. And while a world apart and their reasons, James is showing us that a good evaluator of the Christian faith is also giving the same firm verbal command. He's saying, show me your hands. You, you genuinely are in Christ. You're genuinely maturing in the faith. It's a, it's a faith that saves. It's a faith that works. It's a faith that is maturing. Okay, show me your hands. Because profession of faith does not definitively equal possession of faith. So while profess, professing faith in Christ is wonderful, James is again pressing us, show me your hands. Show me your actions. Because an officer, he's looking for empty hands, but James is looking for calloused ones. He wants to see what does it work what does work look like? Are they soft? Soft hands usually come from sitting in academic studies and never getting out. Are they calloused? Have they been labored with? An officer wants to be uh, he wants to see an absence of weapons. He's not just saying like I really like to see hands. Can you show me your hands? No, there's a, there's a reason. Are they empty? James doesn't want empty hands. He wants the presence of tools for service. And so having heard having received the implanted word and having taken it to root and secured its place in your heart, the call now is again, as James says, you have faith, you declare, you proclaimed you have faith. That's wonderful. Show me your hands. Because a living faith is an acting faith, a faith that takes action, a faith that doesn't say be warm to be filled, but says have my coat, have some food, not because this is all about social actions and responses, because it's mercy put into action. It's the nature of what we do. And in, as we continue to increase in it, we increase in maturity, which is, how do we do that? Well, we exercise the wisdom that comes from above, which is what James has been driving at, isn't it? 
The wisdom that comes from above will direct us to greater maturity in areas of loving one another, in areas of trusting God and having confidence, in areas of expressing our faith in action. All right, let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you for the book of James and passages that are incredibly straightforward and yet peculiarly challenged at times. It grieves me that so much strength and exercise by uh, various teachers and commentators are in, in resolving a problem that was never there. It sounds like middle school drama, solving problems that never existed. So we're thankful, Lord, that James's message is clear. We thank you that what he expressed was that he's pressing us to a greater maturity. He's pushing us to maturity by, by means of the wisdom that comes from above. And here it exercises itself in living faith. And we're not short on knowledge. We're not short on understanding. But there's a knowledge and an understanding that can be empty. James will go on to say as much. You, you believe that God is one? Baseline theological affirmation, well done. You know, the demons also believe. They're theologically astute. So, Lord, we don't want to just be those who have uh, accumulated a wealth of knowledge and information that has made us indifferent, that is called to question and our proclamation. Rather, Lord, we want to, to receive the word, that the word would be put to action. And the word be put to action, not that we prove ourselves or to please you, but because you've worked an effectual work in our heart and it expresses that work. And so, Lord, we, we recognize this can be hard to do. Kind of wish it, we were just directed. I almost wish James had given us a general example of just be kind to one another. I think we can do that very easily. We, we can leave here and be nice to one another. We can do nice things for one another. But he pressed us toward a very difficult group, the poor, the weak, and the needy. What do we do with that? I don't think it's always incredibly clear. And, and there's those who have abused or even uh, exercised their own morbid works-based salvation based off of such things. We don't respond to that. What we do respond to is the clear principles that if we see our brother in need, how can we not respond? So Lord, would you give us help? Would you give us wisdom to wrestle well? And that if asked, show me your hands, that there's something to show. There is a living, active faith that pleases our Lord. To that end, we ask again, be our help. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.